And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Stop it! Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spitaro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back. To the bins. I got nowhere else to go! I got nowhere else to go! I got nothing else. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spitaro, and this time out, I don't have Scott or Bill with me, but I do have Tomic, cre- com- tomic Creator. No. Comic creator Tom Kelly, who's joined me today, uh, specifically to talk about a Kickstarter event that I want to get into in greater detail in a moment. But before we do that, I thought it would probably be a good idea for you, Tom, to introduce yourself to any fans who aren't familiar with you, kind of give you a background. And, and as we were talking about before we started recording the show, uh, my opinion is there's very few comic creators out there right now who were, you know, at high school age and said, I'm going to become a comic creator and I'm going to be rich. I think every one of them said, I love comics and I want to be a comic creator. And I was one of those guys, by the way. I just didn't have the level of talent that I thought I did. Uh, But anyway, uh, why don't we start with, you know, your comic book background and then we'll work from there. Okay. Um, Well, I'll I'll start the origin story from the beginning and and, uh, we'll build up from there. So I grew up, okay, so yeah, for me, the comic book started when I was a very little kid. Uh, when I was uh, really young, I grew up in northeastern Pennsylvania, right around uh, Scranton, Pennsylvania. You guys mm-hmm. ever seen The Office? Yeah, like, it's a real actual place. And people, I, I've been to Scranton. <laughs> and I, live, I, li- I lived in the rural area outside of it, a uh, place called Clark Summit. So. Okay. And... I, you know, growing up as a little kid, I didn't like to uh, read. I was a slow uh, reader. I didn't like to read at all. So my parents tried a lot of things to get me to actually read anything. And my older brother is nine years older than me. He liked comic books. And I, I really liked the pictures. So I kept like stealing his. And my parents saw that and they were like, well, whatever it gets him you know, if it gets him to read these books, that's cool. Like, whatever it gets him to read. So then they started buying me, like, like books, like, for kids. So I would read things like Hot Stuff and Richie Rich, um, a lot of the Harvey comics, some of Archie. It's the entry-level drug for comics. Well, that's the, <laughs> yeah, that's the entry-level, and that's the thing your parents know is safe. Like, it's bright colors, simple storylines, and, like, it, you know, they knew, like, my parents at least knew who Casper the Friendly Ghost was, right? Because there was, like, you know, cartoons and stuff of that. So they felt safe in getting that. And then you start working your way up to, like, X-Men and, and Batman and, like, all those comic books. So 
uh, and it worked out really well, actually, because I became a very voracious reader. Um, my literacy, like reading and comprehension rate really jacked up because it's like every day it's like working out. Like you start out really small with Casper the Friendly Ghost and then you start doing like super sets of like Alan Moore's Watchmen. You know what I mean? Like you just, <laughs> just build. Like it's, it literally is like a muscle. You, you train yourself. I mean, by the time I was in fifth grade, I was reading way at a much higher level than all the rest of the kids in my grade. I think, so, I think a lot of us got a, got a lot of vocabulary through reading comic oh, books. Oh, for sure. And, and a lot sure. of us have the experience of having the word that we, we know what it means because we've read comics and we've seen the context, and then we yeah. use it in real life and we find out that we're totally mispronouncing it. Oh, well, yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, that, that's such a, yeah, or just the hyperbole and, like, you, you start understanding what alliteration is and things like yeah. that. And, you know. uh, Stan Lee helped us all learn what alliteration oh, is. Oh, for exactly. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, so, you know, going forward from that, I, I always was interested in comics, especially the art, when I was really young. And that was something that I always stuck with, especially the art side of it, because I always liked to draw and do things like that when I was a little kid. So just like with the reading and comprehension, my art level, you know, you just keep at it. Like, you, you just, it's again, it's like another muscle. You just keep working it and working it and working it and you get better at it. So, you know, what I did, you know, I was into, you know, you go to high school. I took a ton of art classes in high school. Uh, when I went to college, that's what I majored in. I was a liberal arts major. So uh, mostly at the time, what was big was desktop publishing. So mm -hmm. I learned graphic design. Uh, I graduated, I went to a small liberal arts college in Pennsylvania called Lycoming College. Um, it's in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, the home of the Little League World Series. Right, okay. I get that familiarity. Right. Um, after I graduated from there, I worked in graphic design for two years. I worked for a printing company in Pennsylvania called Keystone Printing. And then I worked for a phone book company called the Donnelly Directory. Uh, after about two years of doing that, like working in that environment, it was, you know, it was fun. It was decent money, but it wasn't really creative. I, I, I wasn't pushing myself. A lot of the times I was just doing things with fonts and just typesetting, um, like, like advertising, like layouts and ads and phone books and stuff. So I ended up going to um, art school. I went to the Savannah College of Art and Design. Right. Uh, down in uh, Savannah, Georgia. And that's where I studied comic books and comic book art. Uh, I graduated there in about 2001. And then I moved up to where I live now in Chicago. And I've been living here in Chicago, um, working, doing graphic design and uh, you know comic books uh, since I got here pretty much. Uh, what else can I tell you? So... <laughs> You know, that's it. So the passion was always there. Like when we talk about getting into comic books, and like you said, like most creators do it because it's fun. Well, you know, uh, my dad was a doctor. He was a radiologist. He did x-rays and CAT scans and stuff like that. Yeah. And he worked long hours. Like this was back in the day when before beepers existed. 
So he would get a phone call. He had a two hour commute to the hospital from where we lived to his hospital. And so he would get a call sometimes at home while he was en route. And the minute he came in the door, I have to be like, dad, um, the hospital called. And that usually meant like, you know, he was on call, he called him back, and then he might have to like turn right around and drive back. You know, nothing like a four hour drive in your world to make you say like, man, why didn't I become I become a comic book artist. Yeah. No, I you know what? I always thought radiologists had this easy job because they don't have to actually see patients. <laughs> but but I guess it's not as easy as I thought. Well, in certain cases, uh, my father, I, I think it's a lot different now, but back then, this was like the 70s and 80s. Uh, my father would have to do things like um, a radiologist was the only one who was allowed uh, legally to actually inject radioactive dye. Oh, okay. yeah, that's a lot true. of times when you do like x-rays and, and imaging, you need a dye to create contrast to see what you're looking at uh, in the film. And it's, you know, it's slightly radioactive, so it shows up on the, the scanners and stuff. Um, but that was one of the tasks only the doctor could do. And so he, you know, he said one time, he's like, you know, Tom, what you, whatever you do, you should enjoy it. Because if you enjoy it, you're still going to work long hours, but the time will go by faster if you actually like what you do. Like, people don't, like, you. we think a lot of people become, like, doctors because, like, they like the money. Those doctors don't stay in medicine because, because mm. like, you work, I mean, you work crazy, crazy hours. I mean... My yeah, you got to have a little bit of passion between the residency yeah. and the internship and all of the yeah. stuff that you have to do I before mean, you before you actually start making money. Right. Like, I was the middle child. I have an older brother. He's the one I, I would take comic books from. He's nine years older than me. He's a surgeon in Boston. He's a trauma surgeon. So my dad already got another doctor out of the family. So, he, so I was pretty much cool from that point. As long as I wasn't burning down houses, I think my dad was happy. So, you know... And, uh, but like, yeah, like you have to be interested in what you're doing and you have to really enjoy it because that's the only way you're going to stick with it. Because, and I mean, we see this with like athletes or little kids, right? Like as soon as they get really good at a game or a toy or whatever, like they lose a certain amount of their passion for it because it's the challenge that propels you to get better. Mm -hmm. and, and if you're not challenged, you just like, I don't care. Like it's not a big deal to me. I mean, I've seen kids who are national, like really, really good athletes in high school and college, and they never transitioned to the next level. And like, they could have, they just didn't want to do it anymore. They're like, man, yeah. I've been doing this since I was five years old. It just isn't fun for me anymore. I'm like, well, I, th I think anybody who, who develops, you know, to the profession, I honestly, I was going to say people who develop to the top of the profession, but I don't even think that's, I don't think it should be limited to that. People who make a decent living, yeah. In things that are creative or things that take uh, that extra step, like being a doctor or whatever, if you don't have a passion for it, at some point, you're just going to say, you know what, this is too much work. I'm going to step away from it. And the funny thing is, because I, again, I did have a passion for it and I thought I was talented, but at some point I gave up. And I, and, you know, and eventually with hindsight, I realized I'm not as talented as I thought I was. The level of talent I have is, is, is a dime a dozen. I've met so many other people who are, who well, are just as good, if not better. You know, so this will, this segues into like, 
how I, you know, how you break into comics, right? So when I got done or was finishing up uh, down at SCAD, the Savannah College of Art and Design, I really started hitting the, the comic book invention circuit. I went to like San Diego Comic-Con from like 1998 to 2015 for like, as well as like lots of other shows around the country. And you know, that's like portfolio in hand, you know, just like banging on any door to try to get someone to look at your work, to, to, to get work. And the funny thing is, is that, you know, when you go to any school, right, in your department, there's always like, like the, the shining star of that department. Mm-hmm. Like in the art department, there's always one or two individuals who are like just the darlings of, you know, your year or that grade, because like, they seem like they're light years ahead of you or whatever. And the thing is, is that, yeah, like at every level, there's somebody who's very talented, but the next level you go up, everybody's at that average and you have to get better. Right. And that, that requires work. And it is, and for some people, when they hit that threshold where in order to get better, you have to work that much harder. Mm-hmm. It, it it becomes like a, a, a you know um, a risk versus reward sort of scenario of like, well, do I want to spend four more hours on a Saturday morning at seven o'clock in the morning drawing figures at like some live model session? Do I want to spend Friday night working on you know more sample pages for Marvel in DC? instead of going out with my buddies to shoot pool or whatever. And not only that, but it is like, it's a, it's, it's like 10,000 no's before you get one, maybe like it really is like, yeah, I got two no's. I got one from Marvel and I got one from DC and I gave up. (laughs) I got, I got a bin. I mean, I got a binder that's like this thick full of rejections from every publisher. And that's just the ones I would mail in and then either get back like the thank you, no, whatever. And then there was like the face-to-face ones. And I, I came to a realization, and that was the one thing that all the portfolio reviews taught me. At a certain point, they're just sort of telling you the feedback that you get at a certain point isn't really productive for you. Because really what they're saying is they're giving you a bunch of stock answers. You've got to work on your anatomy. You've got to draw backgrounds better. You've got to work on your perspective, right? Every artist alive has to be better at that. No matter how good you think George Perez is or Alex Ross is or like any of those folks, they all have to get better at that. Like we all do. Like we all want to get better and work at it and work at it, right? Right. And so at a certain point, that's like, you just like, you know, all I'm hearing is the same thing, but you start realizing that like, they don't know what to say feedback wise. So they're just sort of talking the sort of pat answers that everyone can use to make them better. Right. Cause I mean, the truth of the matter is, is like for me to get a job at Marvel, another guy working at Marvel has to not get work. 
No, I mean, I've had editors. That's true. I mean, there's only so much work to go around. No, so. I mean, I've, I've been like, just like this, just eye to eye, sitting across from each other. And I've had editors from Marvel, DC, and Dark Horse say like, yeah, your work's decent. It, it's pretty good. Um, but, you know, here's the thing. Like, to give you work, I have to, like, I, it's literally they just don't have enough titles. So they're like, well... Sure, I could give you work, Tom, but does that mean Art Adams doesn't get work this week? Like, so they really evaluate what they can sell. An editor looks at your work and says, if I put this person on even the most crappy Aqualad versus like the Penguin book, like the lowest rung of their publishing thing, do I think that will make like move units? Because, like, that's really what they're hiring. They're not hiring someone to take a chance with. They're not in the – it's a business. They're not yeah. going to say, well, maybe if I give you a shot, oh, you could fail. Like, no, like, that's – they don't fail. Like, they do as well. Like, they do an average, and then they go above. They never go below. As soon as sales go below, people books get canceled, creative teams get split up. Like, that's how it goes. It seems like it's more ruthless than ever right now, to be honest with you. I don't think well, it's ever been as, uh, no. as, as iffy to get a job, in, in, at least in, in the big companies. Well, you know, here's the thing, and that's the evolution of comics, and this will lead to, like, why I'm kickstarting mine. So comics used to be such a niche thing that only very, like, that only the readers and, and, and the really comic book kids were into there weren't movies, there were very few TV shows, there was a little bit of animation, right? Once the movies and like once the movies really started to hit and that opened up all the other media avenues, so that like you have like you look at the CW, it's got like five, six DC comic book shows on it. Right. You look at the Marvel movies, they're gonna enter phase four or whatever, which is like a thousand more films they've got slated on their list. Well, I saw this when I went to San Diego. I started going in like 1998, and it was still a big show. At that point, it was a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday show. Once, like, movies really started to show up, like, and that was things like, you had things like a Batman movie or or a Superman movie. Like, DC might have the Batmobile for that. But once they started having things like once Iron Man broke huge, then you really saw the presence jump. Like that's when they added Wednesday to like a full day. That's when like everything became bananas of like, it's impossible to get a hotel. Like, well, not impossible. Like it's super expensive to get a hotel close by because Hollywood buys blocks and blocks of rooms. So now even if you're in the industry of comics, you're two more degrees away from the, like the epicenter, the convention center, right? Like you just keep moving out. And that in turn has made comic books very popular with Hollywood writers and creatives in Hollywood, because now they can go and write these books that could get turned into a movie. Which, hey, like, writers in Hollywood for movies and TV, they're, like, pretty low on the rung of, like, like the scale of, like, who's important. Like, the writer's not really high up there. 
and the way movies and TV shows are written, like it's a lot of different people like writing and contributing to the script. So it's really rare that it's just one person coming up with the script and like, oh, this is my this is my movie. I wrote it. It's like, no, it's like four writers did a treatment and then three other people were hired on set to change stuff. And then the actors ad-libbed a bunch of dialogues. So you're like, oh, who wrote it? I'm like, I don't know at this point. Like, I don't know, you know? Right. So, you know, coming back around to comics, what does that mean? Well, there's a lot more interest. So that is a lot more people trying to get into comics because now there is a way to make money in comics, right? Like you look at that Robert Kirkman walking dead of like, okay, I make a book it gets turned into a movie or a TV show and I make a bunch of money, right? Like that sounds cool. That didn't exist in 1980. Like when I was trying like as a you know, teenager and young adult to break into comics, I wanted to draw like the X-Men full time. I wanted to have like a steady job drawing some like cool stuff that, right. I, that I love, you know? Well, that was back before creator owned was really a thing. Right. Oh yeah. Like you might have Sergio Aragonis, or you might have the pennies with ElfQuest and like one or two other um, properties, but it was really, it was very expensive and super hard. And some of the things that have changed now are like, okay, so now we'll get into my comic, right? So I'm doing a Kickstarter for my graphic novel. Uh, it's called Foot Fist Frankenstein. It's up in the comics, uh, the comic book section of Kickstarter right now. Anybody and just, just as a, by the way, when I post this episode, I'm going to put a link to your Kickstarter cool. on, we have a back to the bins fan page right. on Facebook. So I'm going to add it there. So anybody who's listening to this, who, yeah. you know, when, when we're, when we're done talking, if they say, Hmm, that sounds like an interesting thing. Even if you don't know that you're going to buy it, if you think it yeah. sounds interesting, click on the link that I put and take a look at it. Cause I'm, I, frankly, I'm looking at it right now while we're talking and I, I, I I think it's very interesting looking and I'm going to let Tom go back on talking about it more now. Okay. Well, yeah. So it's called foot fist Frankenstein. It's 120 page hardcover, full color graphic novel. Uh, it takes all the things that I loved as a kid and mashes them together into a really cool story. And those things are monsters, comic books and Kung Fu theater. Growing up as a kid, there was always a monster movie on TV or there was either Kung Fu theater on TV. And when there was nothing on TV, I was reading comic books. So I took those three things that I always loved since I was super young and I fused them together into a really cool story. The story is a revenge story. It's kind of like John Wick meets the Incredible Hulk by way of Kung Fu theater. Because I would read comic books like The Incredible Hulk or Superman. The Hulk and Superman don't know how to fight. Like, Batman is, knows how to fight. He trains. Like, Iron Fist trains. Chang-Chi trains. Like, they have moves and techniques. Like, Superman isn't throwing a roundhouse kick. Like, the Hulk isn't doing, like, some sort of nerve strike. That's what, like, that's what a trained fighter does, right? And so... it. I would be reading these comics and I would think, yeah, but what if Superman really knew how to fight? Or what if the Hulk, instead of just going Hulk smash, like could actually like throw moves and fight and, and had a technique to what they did. 
And that germ of an idea just stuck. And I kept sort of coming back to it. Like I draw in my sketchbook and come up with ideas. And then I'd be like, all right, I want to do this as a comic. So what do I do next? Well, next is like, I got to form this character into something that's like uh, cogent. And I knew I couldn't use the Hulk, right? Because like Marvel owns the Hulk. They're not, I mean, I just told you earlier, like it's hard to break in. So I don't have, you know, a hotline to the, you know, the, the editorial department going like, hey, I got a cool idea. Oh, sure, Tom, here's a million dollars. Go do that. <laughs> that doesn't happen. So I was like, okay, cool. I want to make a Hulk-like character. And when I started thinking about who the Hulk is really based off of, I'm like, well, the Hulk is part Frankenstein and part Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So I looked up like Frankenstein and Frankenstein and the Frankenstein monster is in the public domain. So anyone can use that character. Um, so instantly I was like, okay, that's name recognition. Like people know Frankenstein. They might not have ever really read the book unless they had to require reading in like high school or college, but they know there's movies and TVs and Herman Munster and like all that stuff. Right. Right. Yep. So there's a certain amount of like rec like recognizable thing in it. Like, so I was like, okay, cool. He's going to be a Frankenstein monster. I definitely want him doing martial arts. And then so I started crafting a story of like how that could work. And what sort of came up to me is like, well, what motivates people? And it's like, for me, it's like two things. Like it's either love or hate, i.e. revenge, right? So I was like, okay, well, a lot of martial arts stories or kind of like someone learns martial arts to empower them or save someone or just make themselves better. And they end up using martial arts to fight the bad guy because they're kind of pushed into a scenario where they have to do it. Right. All right. I mean, so then I said, okay, cool. I've got the character. I know what I want him to do. Like, uh, like fight wise. And then I could take all the stuff from the Shaw Brothers movies and Bruce Lee and like, you know, Jackie Chan and Jet Li and all those fun action movies that I, I love, you know, especially the Kung Fu theater from like the Shaw Brothers. And I said, all right, I'm going to make that. I'm going to make that as a comic, which I was like, okay, cool. Like that had more than enough fuel in the back of my brain to keep me doing it. So I was like, all right, here we go. And so, yeah, I crafted a really cool Hong Kong style Kung Fu action revenge story with a martial artist who's as strong and as tough as, say, the Incredible Hulk, but can fight like a Jet Li or a Bruce Lee. So you really get a lot of fun, cool stuff that happens in the book. I mean, it's a, I, I made it this thing that I really wanted to draw, because that's the thing. When you're a creator, you can draw anything. Like... So you don't have to limit yourself. Like if I didn't want to draw cars or if I don't like drawing guns, well, Hey, guess what? I don't have to draw a gun or a car. Like, you know, yeah, that's true. Um, does this take place current day or is it sometime in the past? Uh, it is a period piece, but it's kind of like um, Conan in that it's in uh, it's in like a feudal type of Japan like era but 
it's not in any one defined era because I don't like being limited by like what you can and can't do historically. Like historical pieces sometimes have pitfalls in that I want to, let's say maybe I want to use a type of sword or a type of warrior. That warrior might not exist until like 20 years after where it's set. But like something like Conan, he's not like, he's in a world that's like ours. It's some barbarian bronze agey type of era, but it's not locked down so that like, oh, if he needs to get on a sailing ship or he needs to use a Damascus steel sword, you know, you don't have somebody jumping out of the woodwork going like, well, actually they didn't have Damascus steel until the later centuries. And, uh, uh, you know, cause like, yeah. And you know, no matter what, like even we've all met what, that guy. Some of us have been that guy. Those guys. <laughs> I have, I've, I've done many comic book conventions where I've tabled that and sold work and stuff. And I cannot tell you, that guy and I was like, well, actually, this is not. The I've gone to panels where people are talking to like Mark Wade or like like Harlan Ellison or somebody, and going, like, well, you know, the continuity of that. There's no way the Star Drive could work that way. And it's like, man, it's made up. Just calm down, right? So I, <laughs> I instinctively, also era-wise, my story sort of takes up like right after Mary Shelley's novel Frankenstein. Like, that's kind of where I decided to, like, tangent off from. So I'm not... We're talking changing. sometime vaguely in the late 1800s? Vaguely? Well, vaguely in that, like, that's when Frankenstein was sort of created, but in the world and environment I have him in, it's not defined. It's just in his own, in his own creation story, it's after he's, you know, dealt with Dr. Frankenstein... It's like it's after that book, but right. I don't nail down the time period because I don't want people to have to be like, oh, the horses wouldn't have those types of saddles and stuff, right? No, I, I get that, and and yeah, you don't you don't you don't want to get all picky and on that kind of thing. Also, it's a lot more fun because then I can blend eras, and I don't have to limit myself on that. Um, and when I'm, when I I'm sorry. No, no, you go ahead. Go ahead. Because I'm 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 looking at at the samples on on the Kickstarter page, and I, I tell you, I'm I'm I look at them, and I'm excited to read more. Oh. Uh, so I'm I'm going to start off by saying to anybody listening, I am planning on supporting this Kickstarter. I'm not sure which level I'm supporting at it just yet. I got to look that over. There, but I definitely will be putting. There's a lot of stuff, something. and um, oh, I tried to make the pledges like the pledge tiers. I tried to structure them so that everybody would get the most bang for their buck. Like, I mean, it, it ranges dramatically. You have from five dollars yeah. for a digital copy to uh, what to was the highest level? A thousand. A thousand yes. is you get the cover of, uh, of eleven by seventeen sketch commission by me. Um, all the digital uh, like bonuses and perks and extras, plus like a custom sketch cover on the front. Uh, I really, you know, like, you just have to have a strata, and they tell you on Kickstarter, it's like, you want to set, like, they give you guidelines of, like, you want something that's affordable for everybody, and then you do want some very high-end pieces, because you never really know what a person who's pledging might be interested in. 
Right. But with that range, I mean, anybody who's interested in this book, there's a level that they can land on. That's Oh, yeah. And and the thing also, too, is like, as I'm crafting it, I had to be mindful of fulfillment, right? Like, specifically shipping cost, right? Because in the United States, we have media mail, which you can send a book through the, the postal service at a very low reduced rate which is really good. Unfortunately, you don't get any type of international breaks or cuts for shipping, say like England, Australia, Germany, really anywhere outside of like the United States. Even Canada, there's, you don't get that, that parity. So I tried to make sure that like even the digital component that anybody can order around the world, you get a, a lot of cool stuff in that. You get an alternative cover, you get, it's a 120 page book, you get 15 bonus pinup art pieces by a whole host of really super talented professional and indie artists. You get a digital copy of the script, so you can literally read the script and then like see the pages and be like, oh, that's how he drew that, that's kind of neat. You also get other things like a digital sketchbook, um, character designs, like character guides. Like I really try to pack it in. And again, like that digital reward then goes up with all the other physical rewards. I'm not partitioning that off. So like uh, another thing that I did do, and this is something I, I, I do want to talk about is that the digital version on the Kickstarter is exclusive to Kickstarter. Later on, I'll probably try to put this up on like Comixology and some other like digital platforms for distribution. They will not have nearly the bonus material and and extra cool perks that the Kickstarter has. Also, the digital version and the analog version are slightly different. The paper version has double page spreads. The digital version has splash pages instead. So I think I have like six or seven double page spreads in the paper book. All of those in the digital component aren't spreads because I read enough digital comics and the splat, like a double page spread actually, it shrinks, it doesn't do what it's supposed to. So I decided to just eliminate that from that component. So you get a slightly different story in the digital side compared to the analog side. Mm-hmm. So really, you know, just to try to make everybody's experience reading it for whatever platform they're reading it on the best it can be for that. And, you know, you like, that's what crafting the story sort of becomes and making the art because I, I knew from the outset that's what I wanted to do. So when I was plotting and breaking down the story and, and, and working it out, I knew like, oh, okay, this is where I'm putting in these double page spreads. But now I have to also craft the story so it'll work as a splash page as well so that you don't get an awkward page turn, right? Think of it like, um, um, you know how you watch a show like a Netflix original or maybe something like Daredevil? Right. Then you watch an old episode of maybe like uh, uh, an old Doctor Who episode or, or like Alias, the show Alias. I've been re-watching that uh, on streaming. 
the those shows were made like Alias was made with commercial breaks. So there'll be like a cliffhanger before it goes to commercial to try to make sure that you come back after the commercial. Like Daredevil doesn't do that. It gives you like however long the episode is, it resolves, it gives you one story and then says, okay, you'll probably come back for the next one or you'll binge them all, right? Right. But the old school TV work of back when you watch like Charlie's Angels or Simon and Simon and stuff like that, they all had commercial ads. So they had breaks in them set up so to try to get you so you wouldn't change the channel and not come back. That's a similar sort of thought for me because I know like in analog books, you get a double spade spread is cool. It makes it bigger. It's bigger action. Unfortunately, the digital equivalent of that, when you try to replicate it, it actually makes everything smaller and more difficult to read because sometimes you have to like scroll and navigate around the, the, the device to see everything. Like, especially like when you talk about like dialogue, because if a character is like whispering in a double page spread, the digital version, it shrinks so you can barely read it. Like I have to zoom it up. I'm like, this is annoying. Like, I don't want Right, to. right. That's interesting. I'm looking again, I, I keep re referring oh, yeah. to your uh, Kickstarter page. Find to be interesting, especially as far as like the process. Uh, some artists have such a signature style that that's it. That's all you see from them. But obviously you, you know, you have the ability to vary how you draw things. So you must have made a conscious choice with the story itself as to which style you were going to use. For, so start off with, do you have a preferred style of, of this, the things I could see here is like, is one, the one that comes to you naturally, as opposed to one you have to work at to change a little? Well, overall, my most comfortable preferred comic book style is really the illustration style I developed for a long time, which is, um, it's very graphic designy, a lot of um, simple shapes and, and silhouettes and figures. Like for those people, like if you go to the Kickstarter page, if you go to Foot Fist Frankenstein on Kickstarter, you can see the samples. And if you look, you can see some of them, the, the way the character I designed my Frankenstein, he's like, he's not green, he doesn't have like this like square Herman Munster head with like the bolts outside. Like he's kind of like, he's the character was designed like partially he kind of looks like a member of the band, the misfits. Like he has that sort of hairstyle, um, very big and muscular, but I didn't like wrap him in um, uh, stitching like for uh, uh, stitches that like a lot of Frankensteins have. I went more like sparse. I gave him like a scar above his, like across his eye. Um, I, on his forearms, he has two brands. Uh, I don't know if you see it uh, in the sample pictures because those are early on in the story, but when, uh, when, he, when he achieves like mastery in his martial arts studies, he gets his forearms branded with two dragons and it's a dragon on each forearm. And, and these are, the character is bone white, like bleach white skin. And so the accent color is red. So his scars and his brands are red on him. And like he has this one eye that's sort of like bloodshot constantly. And that's red as well too. It's a cool design aesthetic that I really worked out to play with because I'm a very um, graphic design oriented individual um, as opposed to like, 
Okay, so you know like Art Adams and George Perez, they can draw 10,000 figures on a page and they, they, they render amazingly. Like, you know, Art Adams will crosshatch stuff until there's no tomorrow. And it's beautiful work. I'm more from like a Frank Miller type of vibe. And so that's the, the more design, big blocks of shape sort of thing that I focus on. Like a combination of like maybe like a Walt Simonson, a Frank Miller, and a Mike Mignola. Like those are much more influential on that side of things. Well, but, I was going to say, I was okay. going to comment on the, uh, on the page. You have the, fir the first image we, or the first uh, sample image we have is of the cover. The next one is a shot, and you see Frankenstein in mostly a silhouette with red and black, and he's chained inside of a cage. And then yeah. there's some other images there. And that's the one I wanted to, to mention, uh, because the first thing when I saw that, I thought of a book that uh, Bill Robinson and I covered on this show. We covered the first issue of, of a, a miniseries slash graphic novel by Bernie Wrightson, Oh, called yeah. Frankenstein Alive Alive. Alive, alive yeah. oh, that, uh, that, and that's, that's what this amazing. reminded me of when I first saw it. That's, so that's the artist who I would have compared this to. Uh, but when, now you, you mentioned Frank Miller, and I do see what you're talking about there also, or Mike Mignola. But that's what it first brought to my mind when I looked at oh, it. Oh, for sure. And I'm, I'm lucky enough, I, I've, I've met, I, well, I had met Bernie Wrightson uh, twice, he came and gave lectures uh, when I was in art school to the art students uh, there. So I was very lucky um, to sort of pick his creative mind about that. And um, especially like Frankenstein, because there's Frankenstein Alive Alive, but he also did an adaptation of just Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, where he did a bunch of illustrations for it. And they look exactly like the stuff you see in Alive Alive, just like beautiful and detailed and, and just amazing. I do think that's also part of the character. Like Frankenstein's been touched by a few different people um, over the years that have put their mark on it. Like Hammer Horror films have a certain type of Frankenstein they did. Universal Monsters has a certain Frankenstein that they created and generated, and that sort of morphed into that Herman Munster sort of, you know, square head sort of like fire, you know, that one. And then there's like been other like theatrical versions where, you know, you play around with stuff. Like, I mean, David Bowie was a Frankenstein for like one film or project, you know? So, but I'm also like, I went to art school. I, I have a master's degree in sequential art, but I have an undergraduate degree in graphic design. So I've done stuff for children's books. I've done different covers for horror books, for, um, album covers so being that i am an actual like properly trained artist i have a, a bunch of other styles that i can turn on and turn off like i'm i'm picking up tools out of a toolbox because right. like i've done stuff for like oh yeah comics which is like you know a children's comic book and right. that's and much I, more I've, I've met franco a couple of times right yeah, I, I'm, I know Franco. Art lives up in Skokie here in Chicago, so I've been up there a bunch of times. And so, I, yeah, I've like my, my stuff has been in Oh Yeah Comics. I've done like three to four stories in, in the first couple issues. But it, it won't look anything like Foot Fist Frankenstein because like when I'm doing kids' books, I'm channeling more of the hot stuff and, and the Harvey books 
when I was a young kid. Right. So I draw like those big open blobby shapes and, and much cuter and, and things like that. So like I am, it's a, it's a plus and a minus. Like I'm pliable, which means I can do other things and get more opportunities. But because I'm pliable, it's hard for people to easily remember me and quantify me because it's like, oh, is this Tom Kelly or is this Tom Kelly? And the answer is, is like, well, I can do either or just, what do you want to pay me for? Like, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, I mean, I, I have to say, you know, in comparing, in comparing that page to Bernie Wrightson, uh, start off with the fact that that is meant as nothing but a compliment, uh, because I think Bernie Wrightson was a, a master oh, in I'm, what he did. And for a character such as Frankenstein, you want something that's going to be, kind of moody and gothic in its own way and uh, you know I, I i think you've you know from what i see here you've captured that and well, i think that's know, important it's a slippery slope because you want to show people on kickstarter what you know what you can do you do want to show them the book but you don't want to show them the whole story you don't want to give it away completely because then you know are they really going to pledge to see the thing like, no, well, you want it to be a trailer. You want it to be yeah. something to, to make me want to see more, yeah. which I'm, I'm, that's what I'm t- telling you as I'm looking at it, I want to see more. Good. So I'm... I think, you know, I think it serves its purpose that way. And I think, again, people who are listening to us, I'm suggesting that you, you go to the page and you take a look at it. Even if you're saying, I don't know if I want to order this, take a look and see if you're intrigued by it. Because as, as we mentioned, there's certainly enough price points that it'll fit whatever your level of desire is. If you look at this, oh, and yeah. want to read and it. again, like it's a hardcover book. I mean, you, you get the actual physical book at the $30 level, but that doesn't mean that's the only thing you get. You actually get the whole $10 digital deluxe version, which is really tricked out with a ton of bonus material that even like I added different pinups in the digital version that aren't in the analog version. So it's like you're getting more art, you know, for your dollar in that bundle. You really are. It's very funny. Um, Cause like, I'm sure there are some people like, I don't know. It seems like a lot, but it's like, I assure you, like it's, it's packed. Like it's packed with cool stuff um, that, I really was mindful to try to give everybody something they, they really could want. And that, that leads me to another thing is that all the work for this book is done. This is not a Kickstarter where I'm asking for money and then I'll disappear or I'll go away for a year. And then I'll start telling you like, well, now I've made the book. It's like, no, like all the work is done. It's been penciled, inked, colored. I hired Marshall Dillon, a letterer friend of mine who works for Marvel in DC he lettered the book for me. He did a great job. Everything's organized. It's all laid out. Like I've been talking to the printer, like they're up in Canada. They've got the files. All I need is just to get that funding. Like once I hit the goal, then I'm just like calling them up or emailing them going like, just go press the button and, and you know, make the book. Yeah, this is not the, one of those. Numbers, lo- I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. But from the numbers I'm looking at on the page, it looks like, you're, you're moving well towards being funded for this. So anybody who decides they want it, you know, it's, it's, it's highly unlikely that it's going to die on the vine. Uh, it yeah, looks it like is, it's it going to be done. We are on track and, and, but you know, I'm the type of guy who's always trained to sprint through <laughs> the tape. 
<laughs> so I'm not going to, I'm going to be relentless until, you know, until it's, you know, all over, you know, until it's way past, you know, the time. Well, some, but, something that's important for people to know if they do have interest in it, uh, that it needs to be funded by August 4th. Yes. Uh, that that's the, the closeout date on, on it being funded. Now, I don't know exactly all of the details of how Kickstarter works as far as that goes, because uh, if you reach your goal yes. by August 4th yeah. and somebody clicks into the website on August 10th, are they still able to buy it at that time or is it just closed out? Okay, so the, the Kickstarter crowdfunding campaign will be over at August 4th. If someone comes late to the game and shows up on the 10th, they will probably still be able to order the book because I can update um, the, the Kickstarter page and I'll have built in, like it, obviously if it reaches its goal on making the books, then anybody who wants to get a book, they can just get it. And I'll have essentially a link um, so that they can actually order it right off the, the now ended Kickstarter campaign. Okay, so, uh, so they're the not necessarily is, cut off of it if they don't do it by then. Yeah, the, the only difference is, is that you won't be able to get any of the perks. You won't be able to get any of like the cool sketch covers. You won't be able to get any of the cool art. You'll only really be getting the actual book itself. So that's why I would say like definitely even if you're only only a quarter of the way interested, go check it out and look and see because a lot of that cool stuff, it's you know, it go it's going away once the campaign is over. But if you want to still order the book and or check it out, you can go the Kickstarter's there forever. That page is always gonna be up there. Like when I was doing research. I pulled up like my friends, like Ryan Brown's Kickstarter pages, um, other people I know who had past ones, like my friend Dan Doherty, who did a book called Touching Evil, um, lots of other people in the past. You can look up anybody's past Kickstarter campaign and you can see what they offered, what their goals were, what were their stretch goals, how, you know, all that sort of stuff. And yeah, you, you, you do have that sort of function now to like, oh, the campaign's over, but if you still want the, that book, I'll have a link there that you can just get order the book from me. Yeah. So even if you're a little late to the game, if you're just hearing this like now and it's, I don't know, it's October, you know, 2020, you can still go to the Kickstarter page, look, check it out. And if you see what you like and I hit my goal, then you can just order it. Like you can just hit a button on that page and order. Yeah. And that's okay. a great thing. Like you couldn't do this in 1980. You couldn't do any of this, like crowdfunding, Kickstarter, talking to you on the internet here. Like that's why like my goal when I was growing up was to like draw X-Men. It wasn't to be, it wasn't to be the next, you know, I wasn't like thinking I'm going to be Jack Kirby and draw the fourth world. I was thinking like, no, I would like to just work as a comic book artist and make a living doing that. Now it's actually much more doable to, you know, crowdfund your book because you have these tools like Kickstarter and Indiegogo and chip in, you have the internet, you have all you great podcasting folk. Seriously. Like, we were talking earlier about like Forey Ackerman and the fanzines. Mm -hmm. well, I mean, that's what every modern like podcast is. 
their fans. Some are happen to be like celebrities like Kevin Smith or somebody like that. But I mean, it's just them talking about stuff that they like with people who make the stuff that they like. And that's where the conversation is like, and everybody wins. Like the people listening, they have a good time, they get entertained. And then you and I and everybody involved, like we're talking comics, we're talking about the whole process of making it. And that's all super cool stuff, you know? But yeah. like, yeah, you couldn't do that in 1980. 1980, God, I would have had to like stumble upon like a chest of pirate gold to make a crappy black and white, like 32 page book, you know? Yeah. I'm just going to, I'm going to, I just want to pick your brain a little bit more about the process just because sure. I'm curious. Sure. Uh, when, when you're a, you know, when you're a, an artist who works with a writer and they give you a script and you work with that, I mean, that all makes sense. Mm. When you are an artist who is also a writer and you, you mentioned that you have a script, how much do you write out before you start to, to come up with layouts for pages, even if they're just thumbnail sketches to, you know, to give yourself an idea of where you're going? For me... And this is my own, everyone is different. Everyone's different. This is just my own personal idea. Of it. I work what's called the Marvel method, which is I come up with the story idea and a, and a plot, like a, and a, just a loose outline. Then I proceed to draw and thumbnail and, and sketch out the, the, the visual story. And as I'm working on it that way, that's when I start creating dialogue in my head and I start moving around because it's still very fluid in that stage. So I can alter the story as I get ideas to um, best tell what I want to do for that sequence. Like I'll have beats that I'll like want to hit. Like the character's got to get to this point in the story now and then go forward to the next beat and the next beat. When the reason I made a script for myself was because I knew I was going to have someone else letter it from the get-go, because that helps having someone else in the industry check my math. Like, if they see problems, they'll let me know. And so really what I did is I did about 90% of the drawing of the book. Then I wrote the script. And at that point, I'm like fusing all the dialogue and sound effects and all that stuff together and then finished it off like sort of in tandem. Uh, usually even when people give me a script, like when writers give me scripts, I knowledgeable writers who have written a bunch for different artists understand that when you're handing the book off to someone, you're handing the baton and creatively, what that means is you're letting go, and then they're taking over. And I always tell them, I'm like, look, write however it is best working for you to be clear in how you want the story to be. But understand that I'm the visual guy. I'm going to take what you've written, your prose, I'm going to look at it, and then I'm going to put it through my creative filter, and then that's what's going to come out. So... What does that mean? That means I don't loosely adhere to things like camera angles or panel sizes and shapes. Like they are great suggestions that the writer can give me, but I don't hold myself prisoner to have to do those. When I'm working with myself, there's no shackles like that. 
But when I work with a writer, usually it works better when it's a, a seasoned writer or someone I know, like I have a relationship with already, because then we can go back and forth and their ego doesn't get hurt. Um, early on, working with a, like, a, a less inexperienced writer, it's pretty brutal. Like, I would change stuff and they'd be like, you know, in the script, it says to do this. And I'm like, yeah, but this solution works better. Like, I'm the visual guy. You're the, like, I'm not changing your dialogue. I'm not presumptive to say that. I'm just saying, like, I don't think you visualized successfully the best, coolest solution for this page. Because that's mm. my job. That's my area of focus to do the visuals, right? Well, and one of the interesting things I've seen as, as we do this show, because, you know, our, our general uh, show is not so much talking to creators, although I'm really enjoying the heck out of this. Uh, but my, our general show is, you know, we take older comics, usually 10 years old or more. You know, we've gotten some in the golden age where we've gone. So we go oh, way yeah. back on some of them. Uh, but you talk about the Marvel method. And, you know, sometimes when you read comics you can gloss over some things that you don't notice when you start looking at it more closely to give a review of a comic. And okay. every once in a while, we come across a panel where clearly, with, and more so with the Marvel method than anything else, but clearly the writer and the artist were not on the same page because you see something visually and the dialogue just does not match what you're looking at. And that very... must be incredibly frustrating for an artist if that happens. Well... It's, yeah, I mean, the, the famous example of that is uh, Steve Ditko and Spider-Man. Steve Ditko is a very Atlas-shrugged individual. He's, mm -hmm. he, he ascribes to the Ayn Rand sort of philosophy. Stan Lee, who was the writer at the time, does not um, subscribe to that philosophy. So there was a sequence where Spider-Man is on a building and there's like a hippie demonstration going on in the park below him. And Ditko has Spider-Man yelling like, oh, you damn hippies. And Stan Lee writes the dialogue, go hippies, go. So, yeah, like, it's a weird thing of like, every, it's always fluid and it's not fully done and gelled in place until it hits the stand. Like, until it gets into your comic shop that's when the book is done. Like when people say, oh, I want a cool piece of original art. Um, I don't think of it as original art. I think of it as production art. Like when you look at old pages from like the Silver Age or you look at pages even today, some of them don't have dialogue on them because the dialogue was done separately. Like either it was done on the computer or they did like an overlay vellum sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So you're not really getting the, the final finished piece of art. You're getting one stage of the production of the art. And you can see that with like Kirby pages or like you can open up a lot of artist editions and see the corrections they made, whether it's like the whiteout that they put in, or maybe they, um, they didn't draw a hand really well. So they cut out a piece of paper, stuck it down and drew over a new hand and like all that sort of stuff which I love. Like I got a bunch of artist editions in the other room. I have some Jack Kirby ones and a David Masekeli um, Daredevil one. And yeah, you see that, like you get to see the production warts, the ugly stuff that once they shot it with a camera, it looked all clean and nice and neat. And that sort of gets into the sort of process. Like 
you know, the Marvel method worked fast, especially when they first started doing it, you know, in the 70s and the 60s, because they were putting out comics super quick. Because it was like, well, as soon as we put it out, they sell. Like, that's what we got to do. Today, you know, the production cycle is longer. Like, a Marvel book will be done several months in advance. It'll be solicited. Then it'll be, you know, solicited in the Diamond Catalog or however it's being distributed. And then it's going to be ordered, and then it comes to the shop several months later, right? Unless you do a webcomic or a digital comic. Then we're back in that era of, like, dudes can put up a page once a week. People can put out, you know, books at a pace that just works for them. You're not tied into a production schedule. And that was sort of what happened with me. Like, I started working on this book in 2015. Over the course of 2015 to now, I had some, like, actual real-world life events that slowed down my pace. Um, 2015, my mother passed away. She was my last parent to pass away. So I had to go from split time from Chicago to Pennsylvania to, you know, deal with the funeral and then deal with, like, the house and dealing with all those, like, physical logistics. So you got grief and then you got, like, physical, like, I got to clear out this whole library that's been accumulated for 50 years. Right. Right. And so that cuts your productivity pace really down very low. 2016, 2017, I got hip surgery on each of my hips. So I was knocked out of action for about five months at a stretch each of those years where I really was just literally on my back. I couldn't do anything. So what I would do in those instances is that's when I'm mentally writing the book. That's when I'm constructing the, the, the story concepts. Like I'm doing the only thing I can, which is think about it. Then I was thinking about the Kickstarter campaign and the goals and the rewards, refining the story. Like so much of comics is actually up here. It's only the final few stages where it comes out through the hand onto the page. So I even say in the, in the, in the, on the Kickstarter page, like it, it's, this is a book I've wanted to do for like for years and years. It's really been a lifetime in the making. It just, now it just came, it finally, this was the year it came together. And if I, if someone was paying me like $10 million or just, you know, pirate gold every day, yes, I would have come out with this probably three years earlier. But you fit it in when you can. The bonus is, is like I could do pages, step away from them for a while, come back, and then be like, okay, I got to rework this. That doesn't look so good. Or like I could like write the script and leave it alone for a day or two or, or maybe even a week and then come back and be like, oh, like, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. I got to fix that. Like, so it forced me to take time. Like the world forced me to take time, but it benefited the book overall because it's such, it's such a better, tighter product. It really is. You know? right. And even the Kickstarter worked better because I could spend time just like examine. I, I looked at like 50 Kickstarter videos on just how to make a video. Because I'm like, I'm a comic book artist. I'm generally not a video guy. So I was like, well, what do I got to do? You know, I dove into so many different campaigns from past, present, 
and and just looked at them. Like I interviewed like five different creators I knew, like about their Kickstarter campaign experience. I'm like, what what did you like? What didn't you like? What went well? What was a real pain in the ass? What would you never ever do again? And you know, and then I took all that data and found the consensus inside it. Cause like you can ask one person, like how did it work for them? But you know, Gene Ha, he did a Kickstarter, I want to say two and a half years ago. Gene's a good friend of mine and we talked about Kickstarter, but I don't have the years of working on DC comics like he does. I don't have a pretty built-in fan base that are just going to respond instantly. So I had to approach it like what, you know, what are the other like business minutia little bits that I have to look out for? I can't expect to have that same level of success or, or response or immediate response. You, you right. have to do keep in mind like you know, where you fall in the strata pecking order because that really influences like how high you set your goals and then like what mentally you have to prepare yourself for. Because it's a battle. It's a marathon. Like, from now until the last day of this campaign, I'm going, 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 you know, talking to podcasters like you, posting every day, trying to hit social networks and all different sites and really get the word out. Yeah. Well, I hope, I hope these conversations are as enjoyable for you as they are for us as podcasters. Because well, I could see where it could become a drag after a while, to be honest well, with you. you know, here's the thing. Nobody's asked me the same four questions twice. And I've been sitting on this story for so long because I, I learned a long time ago, don't talk about anything until it's done, until it's completed. Because if some sort of roadblock hits you, people are going to keep asking you about that thing. Like, Hey man, what, what happened to that Kung Fu thing that you were working on? Oh, well, you know, I have hip surgery, so I can't work on it. Like, oh, okay. And so you really end up like constantly sort of like giving excuses why you're not working on something. Whereas if you don't tell anybody, they don't, they don't know. They don't, they don't have this in their mind of like, yeah, he talks about it all the time, but he doesn't do it. Well, I, I do sense a level of excitement from you about getting this work out to people oh, yeah. and getting them to read it. And, and I, I've always said uh, when it comes to art, whether it's music, movies, comic books, whatever, I always get more of an enjoyment out of it if I think the person who's giving me this art enjoyed doing it when i'm going to a concert and the people on stage who are performing and singing look like they're having fun it makes yeah. it more fun for me so to hear you talk about it and hear your passion for this work that makes it more exciting to me to read because i know i'm going to be getting something that you put your heart and soul into oh yeah no for sure and and i do agree with that like you do see it and it uh, the the passion shows in the work and I hope everybody listening really can uh, hear in the way I'm talking and how I'm talking about that. Like, I want everybody to read this. Like, I'm really proud of the work I did on this book. It's really good drawing. It's a, it's a very solid, linear, clear story. It's not overly complicated with super complicated dialogue or convoluted plot points. Like, I'm like, man, I just want to tell a really cool kung fu story and then just draw 
like a Jack Kirby monster revolving in that world, fighting, doing the coolest fight scenes I can come up with, you know? Well, I'm going to tell you, as I've already said, I'm planning on getting the, the story and I'm looking forward to reading it. Oh. And I'm going to put you on the spot right here. And I'm going to say to you, after I've gotten it, after I've had a chance to read it, would you mind coming back on again and talking to me about the story? Yeah, no, I, I would love that. I, I think that would be great. Um, one, I can give you, it's a great follow-up for anybody because I know a lot of people out there, some of you will or may want to do Kickstarter or either other crowdfunding campaigns. Not only will I talk about the book, and of course, you'll have had a chance to read it and then really ask me about story and drawing points and things like that, but also, um, you know, people can understand like the technical side of this. Like, I'm glad that you did ask about like bits about the Kickstarter because in some ways it's almost an invisible process that unless you've, you've gone through it, you, you really don't understand the, the ins and outs of it. And it's, it's a, it's a weird thing. Uh, um, but yeah, I would, I'll, I'll definitely come back. We will definitely talk about the book after you've read it. Hopefully you'll really enjoy it and you'll be excited to talk to me because you're like, Oh, well now I want to know what's going on next. What's happening next. You know? well, I'm hoping to really enjoy it. I'm going to promise you, I will give you honest opinions. Oh no, I appreciate I'm not, that. I'm not, I'm not going to just tell you I love hey. everything. If I, if I tell you I love it, it meant I loved it. <laughs> I've done the comic book convention portfolio review uh, roundup for like eight years I started going to San Diego and comic book conventions in 1997. I've been rejected and told off by everyone at least five times. At least five times. Well, I'm I not going to tell you I off. I might Mike, tell you somewhere where I think it could have been better if I think there's Mike something. Mike <laughs> Carlin came down to SCAD and gave portfolio reviews, and he actually he, – he wanted to scare all of us because he was he, that was the mindset that he was working off of, but he pretty much told 99% of us, just like, don't even bother. Don't even try to work in comics. So I, I always know I appreciate legitimate uh, critical feedback. I'm an adult. I can take it. And the way you make a product better is by getting feedback and then you integrate that into the next thing and the next thing. You see that in TV shows all the time. The first season of Fringe, it's okay. But the second season is really good. The first few seasons, that first season of Deep Space Nine, it's not, it's not quite there. But once Avery Brooks, you know, gets that goatee going on, like, you're like, all right, stuff's happening. You know? Just as a side note, uh... We do a Deep Space Nine podcast on this network, uh, and we started with season. You know, we started with the pilot episode, and we're actually in the first. What's What's being rough. posted is is the end of season six now, but we're almost done recording our reviews of the episodes through season seven. And and you know, our thing is we're honest about it. There's some episodes which we think are stellar and amazing, and we talk about that. And there's some episodes we think are awful, and we can't figure out why the writers would write it the way they did. And we talk about that, too. And we try never to be insulting to anybody, but we try to be very honest well, also. I mean, everybody who reads as a fan has an opinion. It's not wrong. It's their opinion. Sometimes you can tell the majority of the group – yeah, you're like, oh, like we were talking about Deep Space Nine. Those first couple of episodes in that first season, they don't, like, you can tell, like, 
they don't really know what they want the characters to be. Yeah. And that's true of a lot of people. You can see it in comic books, like the early Hulk comics or early Spider-Man. Like the Spider-Man that first came out is not the Spider-Man of today, right? Like Peter Parker is a different character. And even Spider-Man is different. Batman. Batman had a gun in the first issue. Detective Comics number one, Batman has a gun, right? That's like the one thing we all know as comic book fans. Like, Batman never has a gun. Bat no, no, no. Except he did. <laughs> right, except he did, you know? Or um, things like, well, I mean, so much of Bat Batman's mythos, his tools, his gadget, his gear, like lots of the Batcave stuff, that came like years later. Like, green kryptonite didn't show up in Superman until, oh, my... I, I think, I think, I think that, that actually came from the radio. Yeah, it came the out radio. of the radio play. Yeah, so did um, Look Up in the Sky. That came out of the radio play because, like, it, when you draw something, you just have somebody point and go, look. You wouldn't say, look, up in the sky, because we're already pointing and looking in the sky. It's a visual medium. But in radio, and I've listened to a ton of radio plays, my dad loved The Shadow. So he had all the old uh, Lamont Craston uh, shadow radio plays on cassette tape. So when we'd go on like car drives for uh, vacation to like, you know, somewhere that we were going, we, he'd play those. So we'd listen to like that. And yeah, you really see like how, um, you know, the characters evolve and especially the media they're in. Like so much of Superman, like that was, it comes from different places. Like certain things about like Jimmy Olsen was created, I think for either the radio play or on um, the TV show. He didn't I, I think, I think he was also the radio. I think yeah. he, he started in the radio and then they took him into TV yeah. and comics and everything. Yeah. I, and I, I, of, if my history is correct. And a lot of like Batman, like you look at like some of the Batman villains that were created for the Adam West TV show that really didn't show up in like the comics before that and then now they're like a staple of his rogues gallery so yeah like feedback I, people listen to the feedback even if we as creators um you know get hurt that no one understands our creative vision uh the smart ones adapt and it's like well if everybody wants this character to be that way who am i to argue with the tide like I can surf this wave and be far more effective than I can be just fighting, you know, the tide over and over again. Like that's just not a good use of your creative energy. You right. can make tons of cool things. They don't all have to hit. And truth be told, sometimes it's just timing. You can have a great story, but people won't catch on to it until later. Like there's a lot of movies that when they were first released, weren't that popular but begot, be, went on to be called hits, like Mad Max. Mm -hmm. that, that was like the weird sci-fi sort of thing, but it wasn't a big box office super monster thing. Like Fury Road was huge. Mad Max was like this little film they made and it's like, oh, it's cool. But it's, you know, it just was like weirdly ahead of its time, but enough people got into it that they made another movie and another movie and you're like, then they come out with like this big budget version, like, and it's all that's glorious Fury Road. And you're like, wow, this was, this was cool. You know, so. 
yeah, and compare that to the original Mad Max movie. Just, oh, yeah. Just, just on special effects alone, it's, it's an amazing right. contrast. But, you know, we're also talking 35 years, something have, like that, 30 years. Have you, yeah, have you ever seen the documentary? It's called Almost Hollywood. No, I haven't seen that. I think it might still be on Netflix, but you can find it. And it's all about the Australian filmmaking, especially that era. And in Mad Max, they talk about Mad Max and a bunch of other stuff, uh, films in there. And the car chases on the highway in Mad Max, they just took cameras, bolted them to the hoods of cars, and then just went out to the highway and just drove full out. They didn't close the highway. They just went for it. Because they were like, we would never get permission to do this. Right. Like, there's no way in, in Australia they close a highway for us. So we just didn't bother to ask, you know. And there's a lot of that. Like, there's a lot of really weird, quirky stories about that. And, and I think that sort of highlights at its core what the entertainment industry kind of is, right? It's, it's this sort of lawless land where you're rewarded for success regardless of how you got there. And so whether you're following every rule across the way or if you're kind of breaking a bunch of them, but your end result is something really popular or good, then everybody's happy, right? And comic books is kind of the same way. Like when Jack Kirby and Stan Lee were making characters, they threw a ton of characters at the wall and whatever stuck, they just kept doing more of. And what didn't hit, they're like, okay, well, maybe we'll come back to that. Like, so It's, it's amazing these- how much of it did stick though. And that's, that's tribute to their genius look how much is being turned into movies now, right? I mean, The Eternals. They're making an Eternals movie with Angelina Jolie. That, <laughs> and you know what? After, after they made a Guardians of the Galaxy movie, I can't question right. the likelihood of them having it be successful because right. I never thought you could put that on film and have it be a box office smash. Right. Oh, totally, exactly. And so it also kind of shows like, you know, if you take these properties and you give them the light, the right number of like sort of support and and funding and attention, they can be really good because the core is there. The core material is solid. You know, it just has to be, you know, a little raised up. It just has to be supported, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's the truth. I mean, look at like the Ninja Turtles. Like those old, those original versions of the Ninja Turtles, they're okay. Like, like they're cool, but they're like cool indie art. Like the way they're drawn and the style and the way, the, even the printing like values, like, like those books were printed on good printing presses, but not the best and not the most expensive paper. Like they were decent kinds. Like now the books of today, like if you get a reprint of like the original uh, turtles, the, the the printing quality is just so much better than the original. Right. It's still the same story, but you're like, wow, like you know, that's how it goes. So it is interesting to watch things catch fire or even build momentum over time. And so that like it's not a matter of like having instant success or not having instant success. You're in it for the long haul. Like comic book artists, the comic book creators, they're in it for the long haul. They might make a character today that, you know, will only get popular, you know, 20 years from now. 
like I mean, like crazy popular, like huge, right? Right. You know, and well, you never know. You know, two yeah. five five years from now, I may have you on to talk about the uh, film version of Foot Fist Frankenstein that they're making. Oh, I love it! I'd love it to get to that I'm, point. I love it. Of course, yeah. But well, uh, you know, it's that's a funny thing too, because um, I have friends from art school. One of my good friends, uh, Brett Weldley, he has done uh, the books for the movie Southland Tales and the the movie Surrogates. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've known Brett forever. He used to just like he used to be the guy who'd come over and watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer in Georgia with me, like like on a Saturday night. And so. And he was cool. Like he actually produced a, a really bonus, cool bonus piece of art. It's actually on the Kickstarter page. You can go and look at it. It's, uh, I think it's the one that's very, um, it's very purple and green. Okay. Yeah, I see the one you're talking about. Uh, but he had some great things because, like, he had books option. Both both Surrogates and Southland Tales were books he was working on that then got optioned into film. And he's like. Yeah, you know, like, it's really cool. You get some money. That's awesome. You know, more people know who you are, but you still have to, like, throw the trash out the next day. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, you still, you still are who you are, like you said. Oh, yeah, um, and the passion is there. Like, you're still going to make comics because that's what you do. Like, if someone comes along and wants to make a movie, a TV show, or a video game of something that, you know, I've created – hey, that's cool, but I'm still waking up the next day and making comics. It's not, it's not like I'm like, well, I'm on my mountain of gold now. Okay, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. Yeah, no. I get what you're saying, totally. Yeah. So uh, I think probably going to end this. I'm, I'm okay. hoping deep down inside that, uh, that this has been recording the entire time because this is, again, my first time on Zoom, and it says it's still recording, so I hope it is. Yeah. And I- we have all of this. Uh, I'm going to once again tell everybody at least check out the Kickstarter page, take yeah. a look at it, see what you think, and if if you're intrigued by it, I mean, look, that, that's all I'm going to ask you'll... anybody. You know, that's all I can ever ask anybody. Like, look, I had a lot of fun making this. I really like the the product and the work that came from it, and I'd really just like to share it with everybody. But hey, not everything is for everybody. But at least if you're even the little bit curious, you know, just go and check it out. Like you can look, you can just watch the campaign for a while and, you know, that's fine. You know, I, I, I obviously I'd like to have everybody and have this be some sort of monster, super, you know, colossal hit. That'd be great. But I also know like, Hey, not everything is for everybody. That It's cool. You know, like I'm, I'm going to be honest with you guys. Like I, I want the people who, it speaks to to go out and get it because I think if you see something if you see it and it looks like something you'll enjoy I almost guarantee you that you really will enjoy it. like you know yeah definitely like I said I'm definitely looking at it and I'm thinking I want to check this out and I will be uh, I want to thank you Tom for coming on and taking the time to talk to me I hope uh, you enjoyed it as much as I did oh yeah no this was super fun this was super fun it's uh, it's um I always enjoy talking comics, especially to, you know, different comic book fans. Because, like, I mean, the weird thing is, like, in my world, it's, like, my girlfriend and then my other comic artist buddies. And that's, 
that's like a bunch of plumbers getting together not wanting to talk about plumbing you know what yeah. i mean like it's like well, if, if your girlfriend has interesting comics and you could talk to her about it then that puts you one step ahead of almost everybody else i know i, I i'm <laughs> lucky she's great she loves comics we share my comicsology account actually so um oftentimes she'll just email me or text me and be like hey did you get that you know that comic that came out this week i'll be like oh no, here, I'll go get it now for you, you know, blah, blah, blah. I think the best you can hope for is just to have someone who supports and tolerates the, the things that we're geeky and passionate about. Yep. Um, because, you know, there's a downside too. Like when someone's really into your stuff um, or like into the hobby that you love, um, it, it can be a little complicated sometimes when you're like, yeah, I just don't like that book. I just don't like it. Like, why? Like, uh, it's just, I don't know. It didn't speak to me. What do you, why, why? The guy's genius. I'm like, I'm, I'm sure he is. Like, not every flavor of ice cream is a flavor of ice cream I want to eat. That's just how it goes, you know? Yeah, definitely. So, everybody who's been listening, thank you for listening and yeah. indulging us. And uh, we'll see you all next week. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Darn, that's the end. <laughs>